Just a couple of uh, preliminaries uh, before we begin. First, I want to uh, acknowledge and give thanks to my friend Bruce in the back. Two weeks ago, he gave me this tie, uh, which if for those in the back, if you can't see it, it says, Hooked on Jesus. Uh, as my wife says, that's very catchy. Um, and <laughs> wah, wah, wah. <laughs> Uh, and I decided specifically to wear it today, Bruce, because uh, the scriptures we'll be looking at in this message will all be focusing on Jesus. So, you know, he must be a prophet here, at least in this case. Um, secondly, this is the last in our series on First Timothy, um, and I just want to say how thankful and grateful I am and how much I appreciate your having asked me to uh, preach this series of sermons on 1 Timothy. It's been my great privilege uh, as well as pleasure to do so. So thank you all very much. And, uh, you know, if you ever need somebody to fill in um, in future, I can run, but I can't hide from you. So <laughs> so anyway, let's, let's begin with prayer. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this beautiful day uh, you've given us, for the rain that came uh, yesterday. And Lord God, thank you for uh, these, your people, gathered today. And I pray, Lord God, that you will speak to us through your word uh, so that we will know you better uh, and thereby become conformed into your image. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, Muslims look to Muhammad as the, their ideal and the perfect example for all mankind. Although Buddhism was founded without belief in a higher power, some Buddhists now worship Siddhartha Gautama, commonly known as the Buddha, as a god. However, there is one person who not only outstrips every human being who ever lived, uh, but is unique compared to every other human being who ever lived. That person is Jesus Christ. Muhammad and Buddha both essentially said, we are not God, but if you want God to accept you uh, so that you can go to heaven or paradise or nirvana after you die, it's up to you. You need to follow the five pillars of Islam, or the Eightfold Path of Buddhism. Now, Muhammad and Buddha never claimed to save anyone from their sins or enable people to go to heaven or nirvana. They never claimed to even have the ability to save anyone. Even if they had wanted to, they couldn't have, since they were the same type of sinful creatures as we all are. Jesus alone is different. Even his name testifies to this. The name Jesus is derived from the Hebrew Yehoshua, which means the Lord is salvation. And therefore, in Matthew 1 verse 21, the Lord appeared to Joseph and told him that Mary, quote, will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins, end quote. Jesus is the only person whose very name 
is equated with salvation itself. Jesus himself recognized this and proclaimed it. In essence, Jesus said, I am God, come to earth as a man. If you want to go to heaven, there is nothing you can do. The reason is because God is perfect and holy and cannot abide in the presence of sin. You are sinful, and there is nothing you can do to change that. Therefore, I have come to earth to do for you what you could never do for yourself. I have come to live the life that you should have lived, die the death that you should have died, and pay the price for your sin that otherwise you would have to pay but never could. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I will prove to you who I am by doing something that no one who is only a man could do. Namely, they will kill me, I will be really dead. They will bury me, but on the third day, I will bodily rise from the grave alive forevermore. All you must do is believe who I am and what I have done, and you will be saved. Now, Jesus' claims are so stupendous that if they are true, the stakes for everyone are incredibly high. Indeed, the stakes are the difference between life and death. Therefore, it seems to me that any reasonable person should check out these claims to see if they are true. The book of 1 Timothy includes four different passages that focus on Jesus. And as we conclude this series on 1 Timothy, I would like to consider these four passages as they give us a deeper insight as to who this Jesus is and what he does. The four passages are 1 Timothy 1, verse 17, 2, verses 5 and 6, 3, verse 16, and chapter 6, verses 13 through 16. Now we're going to look at these four passages in order and then consider some of the implications of them for our lives. So first, chapter 1, verse 17, which I'm, I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible, it says this, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now this is a doxology, an expression of praise to God. Although the references the King eternal and the only God might be taken as referring to the Father, the context suggests that Paul is referring to Christ. And the reasons are as follows. First, the immediate context is verse 16, which specifically refers to Christ and Christ's patience in showing Paul mercy and in saving him. Second, Christ is God. His heavenly origin had just been indicated in verse 15, which says, Christ came into the world. In other words, he is not of the world, and he is not from the world. Third, 
This is indicated in multiple passages in the Bible. For example, John 6.38, in John 6.38, Jesus says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And in uh, Philippians 2, verses 5 and 6, it says this, Have this attitude in yourselves, which also is in Christ Jesus, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped. And fourth, this verse, together with chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, chapter 3, verse 16, and chapter 6, verses 13 through 16, fit together as a coherent whole. This verse uh, speaks of Christ's eternal nature. Chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, speak of the specific mission that Christ came to earth to do. Uh, And then chapter 3, verse 16, speaks of the overall context uh, and result of what Christ did in accomplishing his mission. And chapter 6, verses 13 through 16, speak of what Jesus is yet to do. Namely, he will come again to earth. Now, taken together, these four passages provide a complete theology of Jesus Christ in correct chronological order. Now, that leads us to the second uh, passage that we want to take a look at, uh, which is chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. And they say this. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. Now, there is a great gap between God and humanity. God created human beings in his own image and fellowshiped with them in the Garden of Eden. God loves the world and desires that people rejoice in him forever as his people with him as their God. However, instead of rejoicing in God and fellowshipping with him, all human beings turned away from God and rebelled against him following their own way in their own sin. And we continue to do so today. Now, God is perfect. He is perfectly loving, wise, good, holy, just, and true. And because God is perfect and holy, he cannot have fellowship with sin. As Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 48, therefore, you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, we all have the power of indwelling sin inside of us. And because of our sinfulness, it is impossible for us to earn or work our way into a right relationship with God. We cannot even meet our own standards, let alone God's. And our sin has affected not just ourselves, but other people, the environment, everything. And the effects of our sins 
last far beyond what we can see, what we know, and they last for generations, long after we ourselves are no longer here. Consequently, in his justice, God will judge those who sin. And because God cannot have fellowship with sin, the consequences of sin are death and everlasting separation from God. That everlasting separation from God is otherwise known as hell. Now, if we are to be saved and experience life, not death, joy, not sorrow, and everlasting fellowship with God, not everlasting separation from God, we need to look outside of ourselves for help. And that is why Christ came to earth. Verse 5 speaks of Christ as the mediator. A mediator is someone who brings together two parties who are opposed uh, to each other and to reconcile them together. In this case, the two parties who are opposed to each other are God and us. Now, a mediator has to be able to relate to both of the parties. In uh, the case of God, Jesus is fully God, and therefore, he can fully relate to God. But Jesus is also fully man. Therefore, he can fully relate to us. Unlike all other people, Jesus alone was without sin. He can therefore fully represent God to man and also can appeal to God as man and on behalf of man. Therefore, only Jesus is capable of being the mediator between God and sinful man. He alone is capable of giving people everlasting life and reuniting God and mankind. And that is the specific mission Jesus came to earth to do. Now the word ransom in verse 6 speaks of the payment of a price to secure someone or something. It came to be associated with the price paid to purchase a slave for the purpose of setting him free. In John 8 verse 34, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Now, since we all sin, we are all slaves of sin. However, Jesus paid the ransom price to purchase us and to set us free in him. On the cross, he took our sins upon himself. He bore our sins and paid the penalty for our sin, even though he himself had never sinned. Now, how do we know this? Since Jesus was on the cross only for a few hours, how do we know that he endured eternal separation from God, which is the penalty sinful people must pay? Well, in Genesis chapter 15, God ratified his covenant with Abraham. Uh, and in that covenant, God promised to bless people of all nations uh, through the seed of Abraham. Now, Galatians chapter 3 tells us that that seed was Jesus Christ. When God ratified that covenant, he symbolically took the curses 
of the covenant onto himself. He did that by acting out the covenant ratification ceremony. Now that involved Abraham gathering some animals, then uh, killing the animals, cutting them in two, and laying the pieces of the dead animals side by side. Then God, in symbolic form, passed through the pieces of the dead animals. Abraham did not pass through the pieces of the dead animals. By doing that, God was saying, Abraham, if I violate this covenant, or if you violate this covenant, then may I, God, become like the pieces of these dead animals. Because you see, God was passing through those animals and ratifying the covenant in symbolic form, not only on his own behalf, but also on behalf of Abraham and the seed of Abraham, namely the offspring of Abraham. Um, Now, 2,000 years later, on a hill called Calvary, Jesus Christ did that for real. God acted it out in Genesis 15, but what he was acting out was a foreshadow and a prophecy that was pointing to what Jesus Christ came to do and did on the cross. And we know that because Galatians 3 tells us that on the cross, Christ became the curse for us. Jesus was whipped, beaten, and then nailed to a cross where he died, shedding his blood just like those animals back in Genesis 15. But remember, the animals were not just killed, but they were cut in two. And Matthew 27, verse 51 tells us that when Jesus died, the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now Hebrews 10, verses 19 and 20, tells us what that means. Hebrews 10 says, We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated uh, for us through the veil that is his flesh. When the veil was torn in two, that is showing us that on the cross, Jesus Christ fulfilled the Abrahamic covenant. But that's not all. Genesis 15, verse 17, says that when the sun had set, it was very dark. That's when God, in symbolic form, as a smoking oven and flaming torch, passed through the pieces of the dead animals. Now, Matthew 27, verse 45, tells us that when Jesus was on the cross, from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the whole land until the ninth hour. God's judgment on our sin is everlasting separation from him, as I said, otherwise known as hell. Hell is described in various places in the Bible as outer darkness. When Jesus was on the cross, the darkness of the sky was a sign of God's judgment on the sin that Jesus was bearing. But the darkness was also symbolizing the outer darkness of hell itself, since hell is the punishment for sin. The essence of hell is being forsaken by and eternally separated from God. So when Jesus cried out from the cross, 
my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is telling us that he was actually experiencing hell itself. Now, by definition, hell lasts forever. And Jesus did not bear just one eternity in hell, but millions of eternities in hell. The hell that you earned and you deserve, the hell that you earned and you deserve, and the hell that I have earned and I deserved. They were all compressed onto Jesus in the time that he was on the cross. Now that is beyond my ability to comprehend, but it reveals that what Jesus experienced on the cross was unimaginable. But that is what it took to redeem you and me from the penalty of our sin. In short, Jesus lived the life we should have lived, one free from sin and fully pleasing to the Father. He died the death we should have died, and he paid the penalty for our sins that otherwise we would have to pay but never could. All the bad that we have done and the judgment we deserve, he took onto himself. And in exchange, all the good that he deserves is imputed to us. Amen. Jesus gives life everlasting and a restored relationship with God as a gift to everyone who believes in him and turns to him as Savior and Lord. Now that leads us to 1 Timothy 3, verse 16, which says this, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Now in this verse, uh, Paul describes the heart of what he calls the mystery of godliness. And it's all about the person and work of Jesus Christ. This one verse of six lines gives us the context and result of Christ's mission. Now, there are a couple of ways that we can analyze this, view its logic and its structure of these six lines. Now, many commentators see verse 16 as three couplets of two lines each based on contrasts between flesh and spirit, then between angels and nations, and finally between the world and glory. One commentator says this, First, Christ incarnate and thus in the form of the servant is seen vindicated at his resurrection. That is Christ being revealed. Secondly, Christ receives the worship of angels and is preached to the nations of mankind. In other words, he is brought to the knowledge of all rational beings, celestial and terrestrial. That is Christ being proclaimed. Thirdly, He's accepted both throughout the entire created universe and also in the heavenly realm itself. That is Christ being believed on both in the world and taken up in glory. But we can also look at these six lines like this. Lines one and six 
form a couplet framing the whole verse. In other words, Christ's appearance in the flesh, line one, reaches its climax in his ascension to heaven, line six. Then lines two and three and four and five are couplets not based on contrast, but they build on each other. So line two, Christ's justification in the spirit, leads to his appearance to angels, line three. Now both of these things are in the invisible realm. Line four, Christ's proclamation among the nations results in belief in the world, line five. And both of those things are in the visible realm. Well, regardless of how we analyze this verse, it's clear that it focuses on the person and work of Jesus Christ, from his incarnation to his resurrection, ascension, and enthronement. Now, this is the heart of the Christian faith. This verse, like the other verses we've been looking at, is telling us that Jesus is unique. He is not like Muhammad, not like Buddha, and not like anybody else. He is revealed in the flesh. He's not merely a fleshly creature like everyone else. Now, being vindicated in the spirit relates to Christ's claim that he would prove that he is God, come to earth as a man, by doing something that no one who is only a man could do. Namely, he would rise from the grave. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is central to who he is and to the truth of Christianity. Romans 1 verse 4 says that Jesus was, quote, declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, end quote. Romans 8 verse 11 adds that the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. So in doing so, Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit, as it says here in 1 Timothy 3, verse 16, and the uh, Spirit thereby vindicated Jesus' claim to be God's Son and humanity's Savior. And this was seen by angels. It's because of the resurrection that Jesus is proclaimed among the nations and believed on in the world. Now, Jesus' ascension his being taken up in glory forms the completion of the resurrection. By that, I mean that Jesus came to earth to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. He came to pay the price for our sins. What again is that price? As we said earlier, it is everlasting separation from God, otherwise known as hell. And that is what Jesus experienced and endured on the cross. Jesus came to earth from heaven, and in his, in his ascension, he returned to heaven. That is why the resurrection and the ascension are so important. They are important because they reveal that God did not leave Jesus in the grave and did not leave him in hell. Instead, the resurrection and the ascension show that God accepted Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. By rising from the grave, Christ demonstrated that he had triumphed over sin, over Satan, 
and over death itself. By ascending back to the Father from where he had come, Christ demonstrated that he had restored fellowship with the Father. And since the Bible says that Christ is in us and we are in him, his restoration to the Father demonstrates that we also have been restored to the Father. Now that is indicated in Ephesians 2, verses 5 and 6, which says this, Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he, referring to Jesus, made us, uh, God rather, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now that corresponds to Colossians 1 verse 13, which says that God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And it also corresponds to Philippians 3 verse 20, which says that now our citizenship is in heaven. Now this alone gives us assurance of our salvation because if we are in Christ, in some way, we are with him even in heaven right now and he will not kick us out. Now there's one more crucial fact uh, regarding the ascension of Christ back to the Father that we need to know. In the Bible, a priest essentially had two roles. He represented God to the people, and he represented the people to God. Now, in the Old Testament, the priests continually had to make sacrifices for the people because, of course, the people continually sinned. Uh, when Christ came, he fulfilled both of these roles. Indeed, he is called our great high priest in the book of Hebrews. Now, Hebrews 10, verses 11 and 12, uh, tell us something very important about the difference between the Old Testament priesthood and Jesus. Hebrews 10 uh, says this, Every priest stands daily, ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, referring to Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of the Father. Jesus sat down. That shows that his work of redemption was finished and that the Father had accepted Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. If Christ had not risen from the dead, and then ascended back to the Father, we could have no assurance of our salvation. In fact, we would not be saved. Now, however, we have full assurance of our salvation. Nothing else has to be done because Christ sat down. His work of redemption is complete. So if we are truly saved, we cannot lose our salvation because Ephesians 4 verse 30 says, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. And Christ who is in us said that he would never leave us or forsake us. And if that is not 
good news, then I don't know what is. And it's all because of what Jesus Christ has done. Now that leads us to chapter 6, verses 13 through 16, which says this. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Now, in verse 13, some scholars identify the confession uh, as Jesus' declaration to Pontius Pilate that he was the king of the Jews. However, the words translated before Pontius Pilate can also be translated in the time of Pontius Pilate. And if that translation is correct, then Jesus' confession was all that he said and did throughout his ministry on the earth. In verse 14, it says, you keep the commandment without stain or reproach. Now, Paul was specifically giving this charge to Timothy, but it obviously applies to all of us. The commandment is not specifically defined. It probably is general, uh, encompassing Timothy's and our commitment to Christ, a commitment to proclaim the gospel, and to live lives of righteousness, goodness, faith, love, and perseverance until Jesus Christ returns. Now, without stain or reproach, indicates that how we live our lives is a reflection of the gospel we say we believe. What this is telling us is that we are to live our lives so that just as Pontius Pilate found no fault with Jesus, that even our enemies will be able to find no fault in us. And when Paul adds, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, he is specifically referring to the second coming of Christ. Even Islam admits that Jesus Christ is coming again to judge and to reign. And look at how Paul describes Christ in verses 15 and 16. The reference to he who will bring it about at the proper time fits the Father, but it also fits Christ. Indeed, verse 14 is talking about the second coming of Christ. And the phrase, King of kings and Lord of lords, is applied to Christ in Revelation 17, verse 14, and 19, verse 16. Matthew 28, verse 18, says that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Christ. So he clearly is the king of kings and lord of lords. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says that Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. Consequently, 
He is the only sovereign. He is therefore immortal and dwells in unapproachable light. And when it says, to him be honor and eternal dominion, that is hearkening back to Daniel 7, verse 14, which is also about Christ, the Son of Man. And it says there, his dominion is an everlasting dominion. Paul is therefore ending his description of Christ uh, in chapter 6, similar to the way he began in chapter 1, verse 17. So who is this Jesus? He is beyond our ability to fully grasp. He's more magnificent than the greatest being that one can imagine. And yet, and yet he says, I call you my friends. He loves us. He has compassion on us. He wants us and he wants the very best for us. If we truly understand this in the depths of our being, it will help us and will empower us to live without stain or reproach and to persevere until we finally see him face to face. These four passages in 1 Timothy are telling us that there is no one like Jesus. Now, what are implications of all this for our lives? Well, first, if you have not turned to Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, do it. His claims about himself and Paul's description of who Jesus is and what he has done are so stupendous that you need to check him out. You can receive him right now. It's as simple as admitting that you've been trying to go your, whole, your own way your whole life. Yet you can't even meet your own standards, let alone God's. Stop relying on yourself. Acknowledge who Jesus is. Ask him to forgive you. He will. Ask him to come into your life as your Lord. In other words, the one who is now in charge of your life. He will. And he will do more than that. He will actually come to live inside of your body in the person of the Holy Spirit. He will give you a new heart, a new mind, and he will start working in you to make you more like himself. You will be commencing a great new adventure. Let that begin today and then tell somebody what you have done. Now, if you have already done that, then get real about Jesus. Paul ended uh, by talking about living without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is coming again. And when he does, everything, everything will come into judgment. Now, we can all think of things in our lives we should change. Make a list if you need to. Develop a plan if necessary, but make those changes and start making them now. He will actively help us because 
Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13 tell us that work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So you're, you're not alone. He doesn't leave us alone. He comes into us and he will start working in you so that we can live lives without stain and reproach. Now the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, say this. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. What this is saying is that to the extent that we are doing wrong, we are afraid of the judgment, afraid of having our deeds exposed as well we should be. But if we are practicing the truth, in other words, doing what is right, living as we should be living, then we can look forward to the judgment because then how we live will be manifested. It says it will be shouted from the rooftops that our lives were filled with God and he is the one who has been working in us both to will and to do. Now, one way to help us stay on the right path is this. Try to consciously bring the presence of Jesus to your mind regularly throughout your day. Now, we're all busy most of the time. Yet, as you do whatever it is you do each day, it only takes a split second to think, Jesus is right here, right now. The more he is consciously in the forefront of our mind, the easier it will be to stay on the right path with him. And the final suggestion I would make is this. If Jesus is truly our Lord, then we should want to please him over anyone else. This can and should affect our relationships with other people. Let me give you an example. Some years ago, there was something I wanted to do, but my dear wife didn't particularly want to do it. But then she thought or prayed, Lord, I love my husband, but I love you more. And if he wants this so much, I'll do it because I want to please you by honoring and pleasing the husband you gave me. So she did. And that helped me to try to please her more. When we really put Jesus first, it will change us and make a tremendous difference in our lives and in the lives of others. So let me conclude by saying this. These four passages in 1 Timothy are telling us that there is no one like Jesus. No one could do what he did because no one is like him. He is unique in all the universe. Yet we can know him 
and be connected with him in an intimate, personal way. Let's get real about him. We will never regret it. Let me pray with you. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Thank you for your word, and especially, Lord God, thank you for coming to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for doing what we could never do, for living the lives we should have lived, for dying the death we should have died, and for paying the price for our sin that we otherwise would have to pay but never could. And thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming to live inside of us and for doing in us what we couldn't do for ourselves, for helping us now to start living the life we should live and conforming us into your own image. Help us be aware, Lord Jesus, of your presence in our life day by day as we go through our days. And thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for all you have done and all you are doing in the glorious name of Jesus. And all of God's people said, Amen.